this uh, special book launch for this book, Andrew Doyle's Free Speech and Why It Matters. I'm really delighted to see uh, so many people here. I'm going to introduce Andrew in a minute, but there's a couple of things that I want to get out of the way first. Firstly, uh, a few words on some of the organisational and tech stuff. My co-host uh, for tonight's event is Ella Whelan, who's also co-convener of the Battle of Ideas Festival and who will be in charge of some of the Zoom controls uh, and will be able to help out on any questions you have. So just drop her a message in the chat if you need to. At Academy of Ideas, we do try to run our online events in, in a way that to the greatest extent possible retains some of the flavour of a face-to-face -face public discussion. Uh, that I'm sure you're all very mi much missing just now. And that, in essence, means that we're very interested in hearing from you. So after I've chatted to Andrew for 25, 30 minutes or so, we'll be coming out to you for your comments and questions. And to get involved in that discussion, uh, and I really do urge you uh, to think about points that you'd like to make and contribute in the discussion, then you can let us know you want to speak by going to the participant section in Zoom and clicking on the raise hand button. Uh, now, I'm afraid there is one limit to free speech tonight that we do need to impose. Uh, to manage a meeting of this size, then I'm going to have to place you all on mute throughout the, throughout the meeting. And in true autocratic manner, uh, I have the controls. So when it comes to your turn to speak in the discussion, you'll get a message from me asking you to unmute and then you'll be able to uh, join in the, in the conversation. Uh, we also have a Zoom chat going, uh, so again, you can put your questions and comments in there and we'll do our best to keep an eye on it and perhaps integrate some of them into to the discussion, although if you feel able to put up your hand and speak, then all good and well. And finally, I should let you know that we're recording this. I really hope that that doesn't create a barrier to you keeping your cameras on because it really is nice to have the cameras on and give a sense that there's someone out there, which I think really adds the sense of, of quite an engaged discussion. So that's the tech stuff out the way. Now the second thing, I just want to briefly introduce Claire Fox, from the, who's the director of the Academy of Ideas, uh, to say a few words. So over to you, Claire. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Alistair. Um, I really just wanted to say a few things about tonight's event, the Academy of Ideas, and actually Andrew. We're actually really excited to be able to host this launch of Andrew's new book, Free Speech and Why It Matters. And it really matters to myself and colleagues at the um, Academy of Ideas that we champion this book because the Academy of Ideas for over 20 years now was set up to create and carve out a new vibrant uh, public square, a place where ideas could be contested. And that was a, a, a kind of public square that was beyond the usual echo chambers, beyond the Westminster bubble, if you're from the UK. And all the recent and growing encroachments of today's more censorious climate really does narrow that public square and threatens to make it bland and anodyne and inoffensive in the worst possible way. So, you know, the, IO, uh, the Academy of Ideas USP is public debates, and it's very much a focus on the public. And so it's appropriate that I met Andrew, actually, I think it was almost a decade ago, uh, when he was speaking at a public panel discussion at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And straight away, I kind of recognised a fellow traveller, open-minded, a free speech ad advocate, uh, who 
actually took the public seriously and knew that they could deal with uh, difficult ideas. And uh, in, in the instance of his comedy, some quite challenging uh, jokes that would offend some people, but he trusted his public audience to cope with that. And since then, Andrew has regularly produced and chaired some fabulous panel discussions and debates at our annual Battle of Ideas Festival. That's an international festival with 100 panel discussions, 400 speakers and thousands of public all over one weekend, but then with lots of satellites throughout the UK and Europe. And its slogan is free speech allowed, which when we started wasn't that dramatic. But now when you say you've got a festival with a slogan free speech allowed, people say, oh, how daring, as though it's like we're doing something dramatic. As we all know, and that's why you're here, Andrew has gone on from me meeting him in Edinburgh uh, to become one of the UK's foremost voices for free speech. He understands, I think this is why the book is significant, that it's no good just repeating slogans or mantras or just saying free speech, that's it. That we need fresh thinking to remake the arguments for free expression in the 21st century. And his literary background, his wide reading, his erudition, his humour, both expressed through stand-up and Titania McGrath, and I think his courage, really, in taking on all comers and not being intimidated, and anyone who's seen him on social media will know that's true, means that this book is one we've been waiting for for a while, and I really hope that it will make him an international star in, in the sense that he is the right kind of advocate for free speech and his voice needs to be heard everywhere. In our own modest way, the Academy of Ideas has also been experimenting with new and original ways of making the case for freedom. And in the spirit of the 17th century radical pamphleteers, uh, much like Milton, I know one of Andrew's uh, heroes, but also Milton and his contemporaries who went around with pamphlets to popularize ideas, we brought out a new series called uh, Letters on Liberty. I'm holding up the last three. The last three are the sovereign subjects of history, growing up in lockdown and art against orthodoxy. They're short pamphlets and the idea of those is that you will, just like they did in the 17th century, pass them from hand to hand once we're allowed and it's not illegal uh, to mingle and pass things from one to another. Uh, that we'll argue over them in pubs and in coffee houses. So finally about the Academy of Ideas, we're based in London, we're small, we run on a shoestring and we punch above our weight, I hope. None of us have taken furlough during the whole of lockdown because we wanted to carry on trying to create that public square, even if it was via Zoom and online. And um, so after you've bought Andrew's book, and that is the priority of tonight, so make sure you prioritise doing that. But after you've made, uh, bought Andrew's book, if you have anything left, we would appreciate a donation or that you become an associate of the Academy of Ideas and make a regular contribution to our work, get our e-newsletter. But mainly, I also wanted to say, do come to the Battle of Ideas Festival. We're very big fans of Zoom. We're delighted we can have an international audience for Andrew tonight. But the truth is, I'm looking forward to having the Battle of Ideas in the flesh. I mean, there is nothing better than living freedom in real life, of enacting free speech with each other and it just can't be beaten. So I hope we'll see you there. And one thing I will guarantee is this year's Battle of Ideas Festival, which will be held in London, or the main festival, but um, in October this year, come what may, will be informed, many of the debates will be informed by some of the fantastically interesting insights that Andrew has, showed, has got in his book. It will be part of the intellectual way that we will try and approach the world. So thanks to Andrew, I can't wait to hear 
from you now. Many thanks, Claire. Uh, so you get the message, buy Letters on Liberty, come to Battle of Ideas Festival and join the Academy of Ideas. And if you go buying Andrew's book, then we'll all be very, very happy. Um, so uh, on with the book launch, uh, free speech and why it matters. And a big welcome to you, Andrew. Um, Claire's uh, already uh, done something an introduction to you. Um, let me just reiterate a few things, I guess, unless people have been away on a, a, another planet for a few years, then uh, you'll know a fair bit about Andrew already. Um, he is, of course, a writer and a broadcaster, one of the UK's foremost satirists, under the guise of his social justice activist alter ego, uh, Titania McGrath. He's the author of Woke, A Guide to Social Justice, and my first little book of intersexual activism. Uh, and amongst other things, he's, he, he, he's a very big writer, uh, expressing his views and ideas on free speech for many publications. The one I specifically want to mention is the online magazine Spiked, where he's a regular columnist and hosts the excellent podcast uh, Culture Wars. Uh, and finally, just to reiterate a couple of things that Claire said, actually, a, a part of Andrew's bio that I think is much less well known, but uh, interesting, I thought, given the content of the book. Uh, he has a doctorate on Renaissance literature, has written dramas, plays and musical adaptions for radio and theatre, and also worked as a teacher uh, at various schools and a researcher at uh, Belfast Queen's University. So I, a kind of very mixed and interesting background, I think, and some of that uh, very much comes through uh, on, on, uh, in in the book, I think. So uh, we're very pleased that you can be with you, Andrew. Uh, it was very nice of you to name check Academy, Academy of Ideas in the acknowledgements to the book. Uh, we were very pleased about that. And I thought that along with the others that you acknowledge, such as Free Speech Union, Index on Censorship and the team at Spiked, it does help situate the book as one that does a considerable amount of work in probing the limits to free speech. Uh, and where advocates of free speech need to make their arguments, but also uh, it very much gives you a sense of uh, the fact that the book's main currency is in ideas, which uh, I, I think for any book on free speech just now is really, really to be welcomed. So for anybody that hasn't bought it yet, I'm sure Ella can pop the uh, link again in the chat and probably continue to do so as a, a constant message throughout the night that uh, you should really uh, buy this book. So um, I'm going to unmute you, Andrew, you are already unmuted. Um, so to, to kick off, Andrew, um, obviously incredibly big and controversial debates on free speech just now. I just give you an opportunity to say where you think you fit into this book and what your motives were for writing it, what your main arguments were. Just give us a sort of sense of the book. Uh, thanks very much, Alistair. And just to say thank you to the Academy of Ideas and Claire and Ella and Jeff and everyone for organising this. I really appreciate it. It's quite thrilling, actually. I know there's an awful lot of people here, uh, so it is quite exciting to me, uh, even if it is a virtual audience. Um, yeah, uh, th thank you, Alistair. In terms of the book it itself, I think if you'd have asked me 15, 20 years ago if I would ever end up writing a book defending free speech, I absolutely would not have believed that it would ever be necessary, which I think is quite naive of me in, in retrospect. I mean, since then, I've read a lot more about history and I've come to uh, the realisation that free speech continually needs to be defended in every successive generation. It isn't something that you can just uh, you achieve and then it's done. You know, that's not that's not the case. And uh, th there's part of the book where I talk, I give a kind of brief 
potted history of, of free speech from the ancient Greeks to, to today. Very short, because the book isn't a history of, of free speech, it's, it's an argument. Um, but what you realise from looking at that overview is actually, uh, we've achieved this liberty fairly recently, relatively recently, you know, uh, uh, and it's, it's, it's almost miraculous. Uh, that we live in a society in which we do have a uh, freedom of speech and and what i've seen over the past i suppose particularly 10 years is this gradual erosion of these liberties and a kind of flippancy when it comes to free speech and, and people uh, don't realize that it is precious and that it is the seedbed of all of our freedoms and, and and people seem perfectly happy to allow these things to slip away in this piecemeal fashion and i and i do believe and and just just from what we know of history uh, authoritarianism doesn't emerge overnight. These are always gradual processes. Um, I'm quite keen in the book to emphasize that I don't think we're living in a world of gulags and show trials. We're not in a totalitarian state. But unless we are vigilant when it comes to these principles, uh, they will be taken from us. And uh, that's why I think it's very important what the Academy of Ideas do. That's why I wanted to, to mention the, the organizations such as that in the acknowledgements, because I think this is something that everyone needs to uh, make an active effort to participate in uh, to defend this this point because if you don't reiterate the point uh, then it will fall away so in the book I'm I'm really attempting to well part of the book I think is attempting to persuade the undecided I think that's part of it is that I I I, I fear that in this current tribalistic world that we live in with the the the, the escalation of what we call the culture wars um, it, there's a very much kind of them and us attitude um, particularly when it comes to free speech now seems to be perceived as being a left or right wing issue when of course it's a nonpartisan principle. Um, and so I wanted to write a book that would be accessible that would cover all of the major misconceptions surrounding free speech. There's an awful lot. I think a lot of people just don't understand what we mean by the principle. Um, but, but a book that also acknowledges that there are there is nuance to this argument, that there are different perspectives that we need to listen to. Um, I didn't want to just go steamrollering in and saying, you know, uh, I'm not going to listen to people who say that they are concerned about hateful speech and its effects, because that is a legitimate concern and, and, and words can be harmful. And, you know, you'd have to be a sociopath not to appreciate that. So it's worth listening and, and, and opening up the discussion and having the discussion. And at the same time, I wanted to uh, make the case for free speech very robustly. Um, so that, that's really the, the, the aim of the book and to address a lot of the concerns of free speech skeptics, which I, uh, you know, I think are worth addressing. Yeah, I, I was really struck, actually, by th that uh, sentiment, I think, in the book, Andrew, because um, at times I thought you, you, you almost uh, bend over backwards uh, to recognise some of the issues of the other side, if you like, in, on, on the free speech divide, um, and go to great lengths, I think, to uh, acknowledge some of those concerns, but then very uh, steadily build up arguments that you can start to take them on. So it, it did seem to me that um, in, contra in contrast to a lot of the ways that uh, the, the culture wars, for example, are pursued these days, where it's very wham, bam, biff, bang, uh, lots of fighting going on, that you have a very patient approach and, 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 and you develop those ideas. But I wondered, I mean, in a way, it almost seems like um, 
if we talk about echo chambers and, and, and whatnot, that sometimes almost, it's almost the, the case that the pro-free speech side is, is, is a bit of an echo chamber as well and kind of doesn't want to branch out. I was particularly struck by uh, the review in the Times at the weekend uh, where someone who's a, 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 the reviewer who's a, a high-profile supporter of free speech uh, basically said, well, you can never hope to speak to the other side. They're just, they're just unreachable. And I just wonder then how you'd respond to that and how you go about actually making the case to those who you know have lots of concerns uh yeah that was a silly review really um i i think one of the things about writing an effective piece of criticism is you have to assess uh something on on what it is trying to achieve and how well it achieves it uh what lionel shriver in the times was saying was that there's no point in writing a book which is open-minded and and tries to 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 be balanced uh, because the people who are sceptical about free speech will never read it, so you may as well let rip. So she wanted me to have written a, a different book. Well, that's not the book that I, I wrote. She was even complaining that there were no gags in the book, uh, which is, it's, it's, it's a weird, you know, it's a weird thing to assess something that it's not attempting to be. Um, but I think, although it's not an insightful review, it does reveal an awful lot about the problems we face with the culture war and with, you know, with... The, the way in which people are now reluctant to even attempt to persuade the other side. People have given up on the art of persuasion. People have given up on, on this basic liberal principle that, that, that um, pe people aren't necessarily fixed in their, in their views. I mean, I share her concern, actually, that, that the, the people who probably most need to read the book never will. Uh, I even wrote uh, that myself in an article uh, uh, last week. Um, so I do have some sympathy with her on that, on that score. Uh, but where I think she gets it very wrong is is by assuming that because we have this culture war where you have very vocal opponents on either side just shouting at each other, that that is therefore all there is. And she's wrong to buy into that illusion because the truth of it is um, that actually the majority of people are somewhere in the middle. Uh, most people are still open to persuasion and um, and and are responsive if you if you if you talk to them without throwing insults without going in, uh, in in that sort of pyrotechnic uh, style uh, that she would have preferred. Um, I mean, I could have done that, I suppose, but it would have completely undermined the rhetorical impact of the book. And it would have been ultimately worthless, actually, because it would have, all it would have done was further entrench people whose views are already fixed. And that's not the point of this book. Now, it might be the case that only a few people read the book who are undecided and only a few people uh, are dissuaded from their current view. But if a few people are, then I'll have con considered the book a success. I think that's, a, that's a, a good thing. And I just don't believe, I'm getting quite nervous at the moment. I'm seeing a lot of people, participants in this culture war on the pro-free speech side who are openly saying they are giving up on liberalism. They're, they're starting to say that they are, it's no longer worthwhile attempting to engage with the other side. In other words, let's just have some fun, get in the muck, throw the mud ourselves. All of those things that the Times Review was suggesting I should have done. Yeah. It's it's very wrong. It's yeah. it's it's completely the wrong approach. I'm completely unpersuaded that that's the the right thing to do. Nothing will be achieved. Things will only get worse that way. It's a very myopic approach. And so, uh, you know, for those who've read the book, I know not everyone will have read the book. Um, part of the point is it's not just to persuade the reader. 
um, if, if the reader is undecided, as most as most will be on certain points. Even some people I know who are very pro free speech have reservations in certain areas when it comes to hate speech laws, for instance, or incitement, those kind of things. And some of us even have disagreements within ourselves, I, I think, you know, um, and, you know, I, for instance, uh, uh, um, believe that libel laws are necessary. And a lot of people, a lot of my colleagues at Spike would say they should be abolished altogether. So, you know, we have these differences and those are worth exploring. But I think um, just to to fully on just fully embrace the culture wars and just and go that that way I think is the wrong approach my approach is to attempt to hasten the demise of the culture wars not to be a participant in it if if that makes sense um yeah and and that's that's what I've attempted to do here whether it's successful or not well that does remain to be seen yeah no I, well I thought one of the interesting comments uh, in in some of the social media work that we did promoting this event was someone uh, wrote back saying it would be an excellent book to uh, to have us on GCSE curriculums in in schools and I, I think it has got that accessible uh, tone to it and and accessible writing and full of interesting uh, references that would make it very suitable to that that sort of purpose and obviously a kind of arena that it would be really nice to have of some of these discussions within. I agree. I, I think particularly young people, all is not lost with young people because <laughs> they're, they're, they're all undecided yeah. by the nature of who they are. And uh, yeah, I would be uh, absolutely thrilled if the book found yeah. its way into schools and, and at least uh, uh, kicked off a discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, it'd be good to get into some of the, those tricky areas that you mentioned, uh, uh, Andrew. And and um, there's none more tricky, it seems to me just now, than, than the world of identity politics, and and uh, which you tackle in, in several areas in the book. It really does seem one of the most kind of intractable areas just now. Uh, not just in universities, uh, but in you know, and institutions where it's spread into, but increasingly in private companies and, and just spreading throughout these days. And I just, I kind of wanted to ask you why you, why is it so intractable? What, what is the, uh, underlies the, the fact that the logic of celebrating someone's identity seems to make them so hostile to, to freedom? Can, can identity not just coexist with more liberal ideas of free speech? I mean, how, why can't we overcome this barrier? It's a really interesting question. I'm not, and I'm not certain about the answer, but I can uh, uh, offer my speculation on this. I think what has happened is uh, the rise of this, uh, uh, what we'd call an intersectional movement, social justice movement, whatever you want to call it, uh, colloquially people call it the woke movement. Um, and, but that is a, a term that is obviously, uh, there's a lot of uh, mucky areas around that so it's, it is actually difficult to know what to call it but whatever we want to call it it does have its origins in postmodernism, uh, and specifically uh, uh, what Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay call applied postmodernism. Um, and and within that worldview uh, there is a belief that language dominates everything in fact our, our, our perception of reality our, our understanding of reality is wholly constructed through language and the natural corollary of that is a is an essential distrust of language and that's why you often hear uh, activists they use the same phrases they talk about things such as um uh words are violence right they'll say that or they'll say that that, that jokes certain types of jokes normalize hate or legitimize hate or and and you'll see we've seen this in politics as well in in the parliament where boris johnson got in an awful lot of trouble for using a metaphor the surrender bill and this was said to incite violence and stir up violence and and some politicians even attempted to connect that kind of language to the murder of joe cox and this kind of thing happens again and again but uh 
with all of this, what is what is particularly fascinating is that no one seems to have interrogated uh, whether or not this is rooted in reality. And the truth is, it isn't. We've had a lot of research into, for instance, media effects theory, the ways in which um, uh, mass mass media entertainment has a direct influence on public behaviour. There have been six decades of research that confirm that there is no such correlation. And yet we persist with this idea that the public are just acting mechanically on cues from the, the, the words that they hear from politicians, from celebrities, on TV, in the movies, all the rest of it. So uh, this is a, a very odd faith-based position that has taken hold, particularly within the social justice movement. And they've done a very good job of persuading people at large that it is true. I mean, this is why, even though most people in the country are not on board with the woke ideology or, or the social justice ideology or whatever you want to yeah. call it, um, most people are still on board with the idea of hate speech laws, for instance, and implicit in that is an acceptance uh, that if people are allowed to say whatever they want, then violence will ensue. Well, that's actually uh, quite a speculative proposition that requires further investigation, but it is taken on faith, taken as completely axiomatic by everyone, uh, by a majority, I would say, and and therefore that's something that I think we need to we need to look into further. But as I say, I think it is this. I think it is connected directly to the rise of the of this identity obsessed social justice movement, which at its heart is uh, not only mistrustful of free speech, but actively hostile to it. Yeah, no, I agree. And to pick up on 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 the hate speech and and because there's obviously lots. Of, I mean, you make the point that uh, right around Europe just now, there's every country is is busy and has been busy introducing uh, laws around hate speech. And there's also um, laws around uh, that lots of people are thinking about just now around online harms that are coming up, which is 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 kind of the next area. And there's been some uh, rather alarming uh, reports in the papers over the last few weeks about what's planned within this bit of legislation in the UK later this year. Um, and I just wanted to ask you about the question of harms, because one of my favourite uh, quotes in the book, I never heard it before, actually, uh, was from uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, who you quote as saying, uh, choose not to be harmed, you won't feel harmed don't feel harmed and you haven't been. So there's very much a sentiment that uh, you can ride out this whole sense of harm. And it's it's quite a shocking quote in a way in today's uh, world because there's just uh, today such an assumption that uh, we're all vulnerable and, and uh, relatively feeble and un unable to deal with stuff. And so I wonder in your, um, in, in, in your view of things, is this just a case that we've, uh, we've all got to be a bit more resilient, a bit more brave, or is there something else? I mean, is, is it the Marcus Aurelius, we just need to overcome it? Or is there, there something else? And I suppose the reason I ask that is because there, there seems to be almost a culture, almost an identity, actually, of, of, of the harm. It's almost like a bad, not a badge of honor, but certainly it's, a, it's a, a method of identification. I mean, you only got to think of things like self-harming, for example. So how, how in the context of arguing for free speech, is is it that you think we can overcome this sense of enfeeblement of the, the human character today? I think it's a really good question. I think the question of resilience is a major problem, particularly in schools. You know, um, I, I don't want to fall into this trap of, of being characterised as saying, oh, people just need to man up or whatever it might yeah, be. That, you know? That's what I was guessing at. Yeah. yeah, because I don't think that's helpful. And I think people have different degrees of sensitivity. And um, uh, it's not pleasant to be insulted or to have people lie about you and, you know, uh, you know, I know you and I probably get that every day. Um, and it's uh, 
it's not helpful just to say, look, pull yourself together, don't worry about it, they're only words. I think acknowledging the harm that words can do, certainly the emotional harm they can do, is, is, is a good thing. On the other hand, there is a lot to be said for cultivating resilience in, in, in young people and certainly drawing away from this idea that victimhood is a positive thing. I mean, I think a lot of the, uh, the social justice movement is predicated on the idea that there is power in victimhood, or at least that is how it plays out. Um, and that's why you get a lot of some of the most vicious online bullies are claiming to have been bullied. You know, that's that's where you get this odd paradox uh, that's going on. Uh, I remember when I was a teacher, we would often have meetings about the resilience issue. And it, and, it, and I think uh, a lot of it comes down to what, what Claire Fox actually explores in her book, I Find That Offensive, where she talks about the anti-bullying uh, measures that have been implemented over the past 20 odd years and, and uh, this kind of tendency to catastrophize amongst the policy formers within schools when it comes to these things. You know, when we were talking about how the, 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 the people, the, the pupils at our school were, uh, they would burst into tears if you gave them a low mark, for instance, or if you, even if you cr criticise something they'd said in an essay, it was, it was considered a, an absolute disaster for them. And the parents would have to come in and there were tears and there was self-harming and the rest of it. Now, that does suggest a problem within the educational system, uh, the inability to take criticism as it is intended. Um, and, and of course, you can't be, um, become any better as a pupil if you if you're not criticized and if you don't know how to do that so that is something that needs to I think we need to look at in schools but also there was the mixed message going on because also a lot of the assemblies were all about you know you're, you you if you're feeling if anything upsets you then it is a disaster and you need to come and talk to us and we'll get you a therapist yeah, and all that all that kind of thing so you get this incredible mixed messaging uh going on and actually I think there's there's an awful lot to be said about resilience for resilience and i think we should be um trying to make sure that that is a priority uh, in schools so it's 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 a balance isn't it it's not ignoring people when they're um, emotionally hurt or traumatized or whatever and and trying to downplay that but at the same time there has to be a point where you don't encourage someone who is uh claiming to have pdsd because someone gave them a bad mark on their exam um you know there has to be a point where you say look sorry this, you know, you need to be, you need to be work harder, you know? And so that's the conflict. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I always get the impression that whenever resilience is something that uh, is tried to be taught or a local authority tries to put in as a policy, it creates a very uh, non-resilient uh, either child in school or uh, a circumstance that the local authorities are trying to trying to address. So it's, it seems one of these things that's incredibly difficult to approach from a kind of a bureaucratic or an institutional angle to uh, uh, institute, if, if you like, but perhaps something that broader society has to reflect on and consider as to how we uh, develop ourselves in a way that's, that's, that's kind of, we acquire that as opposed to we're taught it or it's, it's uh, foisted on us. Well, also more broadly, the concept of offence is something people need to consider in terms of, as you mentioned in the Marcus Aurelius quote, is why have you chosen to be offended about this thing? A, a bit of self-reflection is, is quite important. I think a lot of the time, a sign, uh, someone who is offended uh, is often just railing against the fact that not everyone thinks exactly the same way as they do. Um, you know, if you're offended by a joke in a comedy club and you stand up and you try to stop the show, as has happened to me in the past, um, well, that's really a kind of narcissism. I mean, what you're saying there is my personal sensibilities trump everyone else's in this room. Uh, and uh, the whole world must revolve around me and my personal tastes. 
And that is a, an attitudinal cultural shift that has taken place. I'm seeing that more and more, this willingness, this, this almost uh, need to get offended. Partly, I think it's connected to power because I think it is a way to wield power if you're offended by other people. And mm. we see it most particularly and most unusually uh, with those who are determined to be offended on other people's behalfs, uh, even when there's no evidence of anyone having been offended. You know, yeah. so, so uh, and that, that happens an awful lot as well. So that is something that has changed uh, massively. I think most comics that I've spoken to have noticed that within comedy clubs over the past 10, 15 years, uh, a, a, a sort of greater propensity to take offence when obviously the context of a comedy club uh, for a start shows you that you shouldn't be taking offence at what's going on there because it's, it's comedy. It's not yeah. literal expressions of the truth. Yeah. So let's um, now we're on comedy. Let's let's do the art stuff then, because uh, I th there's a great chapter in the book on, on self-censorship, which I think is um, a very important issue just now, because uh, whenever I hear or speak to, to uh, people who are uh, on the side, uh, skeptic side of, of the free speech argument and, and, and don't necessarily want it, a lot of the time they say, well, um, you, you all the instances that you cite of bans, they never really happened, or you're overclaiming that things are shut down. And I always think, well, yes, um, in some instances, there is some overclaiming, I think, going on on, on, on the side of uh, everything's banned. But that often neglects uh, the side of uh, uh, the situation where people are almost preempting the ban because they're uh, curtailing what they think and they're censoring what they think. And I, I think you deal with that uh, in a very interesting way in, in the chapter on self-censorship. But I wanted to uh, look at uh, look at also at, at it in the sense of uh, something else that you mentioned in the book, because fairly early on you you quote John Stuart Mill. Uh, and and uh, uh, his point about uh, being in a long line of thinkers tackling the struggle between liberty and authority, so that clash of uh, demanding freedom and, and authority denying it. And obviously he's, he's mentioning it in the sense of a kind of tyranny of, of, of the majority uh, uh, moment. And in the arts world, I mean, I, you know, it's been possible for anybody for years to go to galleries or theatres and have the sense that uh, we operate, you know, what you're seeing is pretty much the product of an anything goes uh, postmodernist sort of approach. And, and uh, in a way, there's kind of few moral, religious uh, sense of authority to blaspheme against in, in, in much art and, and, and uh, uh, plays and so on and so forth today. Um, so in other words, there's no authority to rebel against anymore. But at the same time, we regularly hear about uh, shows in art galleries or theatres being pulled because they offend, they offend against some uh, sort of moral sensibility for today. And quite often when you look at it, whether it's pulled because, I don't know, someone doesn't like it because it goes against the spirit of Black Lives Matter or whatever. But when you look at it, it's almost like the lack of authority, of the lack of authority of an institution to be able to stand up uh, to someone who's wanting to censor things that, that, that counts today. So I just wondered kind of where that that leaves us because it's a, it's a strange sort of thing we've gone from uh needing to rebel against authority in order to have our freedom almost to a situation where you you start to think well actually a bit more authority would be not a bad thing if we could hold <laughs> the line and you'd actually get 
you you know you we'd, we'd be able to have a few more freedoms so kind of how, how does that contradiction work out how, how does it occur and how do you respond to it it's it's difficult because i know exactly what you mean and that actually when there is something to rebel against uh, art tends to flourish doesn't it um I think the thing to rebel against at the moment, of course, is the social justice movement, which is predominant in the arts. Uh, and I think a lot, the, a lot of the problems that you're recognising there, when, for instance, activists will say we're upset about this um, art, art uh, piece or we're upset about, I mean, there were even some calling for a, a work of art in America to be burned, I think, because they were offended that a, a white artist had depicted a, a black lynching, for instance. And um, so the, these kind of things, um, Art galleries, um, uh, uh, TV channels, um, TV production companies, uh, the, the, these what you might call the gatekeepers of the arts are very much on board and overrun with, with uh, social justice ideologues. And therefore they will capitulate every single time. I mean, you'll know, I think it was yesterday, wasn't it? Kazuo Ishiguro, the novelist Kazuo Ishiguro was saying that, that he's worried about young artists self-censoring, young writers coming up. He doesn't need to because he's fully established and established artists don't need to self-censor or worry about this, these things to the same extent. But he's absolutely right to, to, to pinpoint the problem with younger artists and younger creatives. And I've even spotted it myself when I was teaching a, a stand up comedy course uh, uh, for about seven years. I was teaching this course in a theatre in in central London. And uh, over that seven years and I used to do three terms a year and each term was 10 weeks long, just Saturday afternoons, you know, that kind of thing. And I noticed year in, year out, there was a shift. I could see the shift happening before my eyes. So the, the, the these were young people between the ages of 20 and 26, new to the stand up circuit, trying out new material, working with each other. But progressively, as we as we went through year by year, they started uh, policing each other's comedy and they would say, no, you can't say that because maybe you're a white male or you're, you're heterosexual or whatever it was, or maybe that's a problematic joke. And and this was happening more and more and to the extent that by the end of that seven years, someone even um, complained to the theatre that they'd read a joke that I'd written online and that they now felt unsafe with me in the room. Uh, because of a joke and that's why I know I was no longer able to teach that that course um, so th this is this is a, an example of how uh, in that case the theatre completely would not stand up for my artistic freedom that was absolutely not it, it had to stop I couldn't work there anymore because one person claimed that they felt unsafe because of a joke because of a, a phrase that a character I'd written had said so um, when you have theatres who fail to defend artistic freedom and don't even understand what the purpose of art is or creativity is and they've all bought into this idea that that the arts are about sending the correct moral message one that is in line with intersectional trends um th then we're we're in a we're in a, a bad parlous state of affairs because as ishiguru says it means that young artists are going to self-censor you would be surprised how many comics i've spoken to including young comics who say they can't say what they want to say on stage. Well, of course they can. It's still a choice. But the yeah. truth is that if you if you are an innovative, genuinely innovative young act, you're not going to get anywhere in the industry at the moment. It's not going to happen because they want anodyne, bland acts that just uh, push the right message. That's what they that is what they're seeking at the moment. And in fact, they see any innovation, genuine innovation as a kind of threat. So um, it is very serious uh, for the arts. Um, that we don't that we that we have this kind of broad misunderstanding of the of what art is um i always go back to the uh, the oscar wilde uh, phrase in the picture of dorian gray when he talks about there's no such thing as a moral or an immoral book books are well written or badly written that is all 
uh, I think that sort of gets to the heart of it, that we seem to have infused art with this moral responsibility. The idea that artists have a responsibility to be moral role models, either in their work or in their life. And I don't think that's true. Some of my favorite artists are some of the most reprehensible people. And you have to be able to, to draw that distinction between the art and the artist. Um, and you certainly shouldn't be uh, encouraging young creatives uh, to become uh, propagandists effectively in order to get anywhere. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a genuine problem. We, we have entered into a climate of artistic self-censorship. Um, but the thing I try to emphasize in the book, and I say it again and again in real life, is, is uh, you know, self-censorship is ultimately a choice. You, and I know it's, it's, it's harder, you, you know, you put yourself on a harder career track at the moment, but unless, unless we, unless you do that, if you, if you're just, if you are being politicized against your will as an artist, right, you can have political artists, fine, but if yeah. you're, if you're doing so against your will, uh, then you're not really an artist at all. And, and, and you've got to make a decision about, about what you want to do. And I, I, I would always urge people to be true to their own creative impulse. Yeah, that's where you'd really do need to be brave, I think, and and, and that that really counts in this situation. Um, there'll be plenty of time to come back on any of the stuff that Andrew's been talking about. I'm going to ask one last question, but in the meantime, if anybody's going to, uh, if anybody wants to contribute to the discussion, ask uh, Andrew about anything that's in the book or anything that he said so far this evening, then do get your hands up and uh, we'll endeavour to get you into the conversation. But one final question, Andrew, and just um, knowing that uh, you've been a teacher and been in universities and uh, regularly come in and speak in, in those environments as well, I just wanted to ask you about the uh the recent government bill on, on academic or the proposal to uh, introduce measures on academic freedom which um want to uh introduce uh, uh a, you know a much greater uh, uh sense of of um ensuring that universities are much more hospitable places for anybody who's like, who, who wants to say what they want, uh, talking about legal redress uh, for people who are disinvited, putting in a free speech champion within the uh, uh, office of, 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 for students. Um, and you know, my instinct with anything government-wise in these situations is, is usually keep them out of it. <laughs> I usually think it's never really going to do uh, uh, very much good, especially where there's, there's an emphasis on kind of bureaucratic measures being introduced. On the other hand, I know quite a lot of people and I've spoken to quite a lot of people who say things have got so bad within universities now that actually this is really, really needed. And it's, it's, it's the one intervention that can start to have a, a positive uh, contribution to kicking back against some of this stuff. So I just kind of wondered where you where you stood on it. Uh, the truth is, I don't know where I stand on it, um, I, and uh, I'm torn because because like you, my instinct is uh, you know a government <laughs> a government figure coming in and saying we will enforce free speech strikes me as really weird. It <laughs> strikes me as really counterintuitive. But then on the other hand, maybe we have reached a point. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of academics. Uh, certainly, I've been a uh, trolled weirdly by lots of academics online who are very intolerant of any kind of dissent or dis dispute and and actually a lot of the, the the ones who've sort of attacked me online they've struck me as not being very bright and I hate to say that but really they, <laughs> they don't know what free speech means that seems like a basic to me um so is it the case and, and some academics I've spoken to in America say to me they fear that the humanities in particular and the social sciences are over 
they're actually not we can't rescue them at this point they're too ideologically driven and and this is why i go back to that point i made about applied postmodernism which helen pluckrose has talked about the, that in 1989 around 1989 uh, academics and postmodern theorists who were always theorists they weren't applying this to the real world became activists so you'll you'll find that a lot of um a lot of the academics who are uh, completely um have embraced this ideology are really activists first and, and academics second. I even had a professor at Oxford University tag in my publisher. He was so annoyed that I blocked him on social media, thinking somehow that that was a threat to his free speech, um, not therefore understanding uh, the right not to listen. Um, he tagged in my publisher because I'd written a book on free speech, trying to get it cancelled. I mean, it's absolutely insane. So when you have an, an, an and look, and I know a lot of academics who are not like this, but, but I know a lot who also tell me that they're afraid to say what they think. And in fact, the studies have revealed this. Um, there was a study by the Policy Exchange, I think, that, that revealed a significant proportion of academics in this country won't share their views uh, for fear of their, of, of their career prospects being limited. And we're not talking about uh, racist, hateful views or, you know, neo-Nazi views. We're talking about just legitimate differences of opinion over things like Brexit or, or whatever it might be. Um, but they not won't a controversial share. issue. <laughs> Quiet, but <laughs> we're seriously in a position where even academics are keeping quiet because they, they, they don't think they don't feel free to speak. There is a real problem and maybe it will take a, a, a form of intervention, but it would have to be with a very light hand, I, I, I think. And I think actually, ultimately, my preference would be to win the argument. Right. So. So, yeah, it might be that things are so bad we've had to get a free speech czar or whatever. Um, but but actually much better is let's win the argument from the ground up. That's why I think it's really great. You've mentioned schools and things. Uh, it's really good that the Academy of Ideas focuses so much on schools because that's where we, we, we need people to be educated so that they understand the importance of being able to disagree and being able to disagree politely. You know, I'm, I've, I, I'm absolutely shocked at the way in which people have lost that ability and and that the way that people i mean i know we all instinctively feel it when someone challenges your viewpoint you feel like it's you've been hurt somehow um but that's something you are sort of socialized out of if you if you if you if you're able to think critically um you know we should all be able to disagree politely and not monster the other person as therefore being a demon or being evil and that's where we're at now um so when yeah. it comes to free speech let's I mean, this is a big, ambitious thing, isn't it, to say? And, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, you know, which I'm aware it might not help. But it, but but I think the idea of winning the argument over free speech is how we will how we will solve those problems, probably not by government intervention, although right. it might be necessary. All right. Good note to uh, halt on just now. Um, and I, I should say, actually, that I think there's some people here from free speech champions, not the government intervention, but the young people's uh, movement campaign, if you like, uh, to create that type of atmosphere that you talk about, Andrew, of, of being able to have an argument and be able, being able to challenge e each mm. other. I'm sure there's some of them in the audience tonight, and maybe they might have an opinion and a view on, on, on some of this stuff as well. And do get in contact with them if you are in a university or you do want to uh, be part of that i'm sure someone can drop the uh, url into the chat line so 
uh, I want to come out for some uh, questions and comments now. What I'm going to do is take a batch of people um, and then I'll come back to you, Andrew, after we take four, five, six, something like that. And then you probably won't have time to answer everything. So don't even try and answer everything really, but just kind of try and pick up on, on the things that you think are, 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 you know, really interest you and you, you want to answer. So I'm just going to go uh, to start with, I'm just going to go down the, uh, uh, down the from the top. So John Holbrook. Well, th thanks, Andrew. I thought your book was excellent, and I, I do urge everyone to read it. I think what the the key point it seems to me you're making is that free speech needs to be defended because it recognises the autonomy of individuals and the right of them to relate to one another on the basis of consent, and in particular that all of our ideas should be formulated on the basis of consent. In other words, we listen to other people's arguments, we reject some and we accept others. That, that's how political discourse needs to take place. Now, it, it's with that framework in mind that I also wanted to jump in on this question of academic freedom, which I've also found very interesting. And I, I, like others, accept that there is a major problem with academic freedom on campus. And I can readily understand why people are desperate for something to be done about it. But I've come down firmly on the side of those who say, you cannot deal with a coercive problem because that is what cancel culture is. You cannot deal with a coercive problem with a, a coercive solution. And that is essentially what the government is proposing with all of its various proposals, whether it's these bureaucratically appointed free speech champions, whether it's having greater control over students' unions, or worse of all, whether it's actually introducing a legal remedy to say that you can sue if your free speech rights have been curtailed. I mean, that's not winning the argument. That, that is simply trying to get your way by abandoning the argument and simply trying to force people to accept your point of view. And the fact that although what the government's trying to do is, is desirable, I don't think that excuses that coercive approach. So just, just very briefly, I wonder if you think that the alternative here is to actually start building alternative platforms, alternative places where free speech can take place. I know that's not an immediate solution for a lot of academics, but I, I heard one academic the other day say, look, if you've got something interesting to say, why on earth would you want to go to a university to say it? these days. I mean, if you've got students who are just not interested in ideas, then go somewhere else. And isn't that really the solution here? Much as we saw with Parler as being an alternative to the incredibly coercive forum of Twitter. I mean, don't we just have to wait a little bit for these alternative venues and forums to develop? Because then we will be able to find solutions which are premised on that all-important notion of consent. Okay, thanks, John. I suppose it does raise the question as well, though, of whether you build a parallel world to the one where free speech uh, is is banned and never the two shall mix kind of thing. So it's a tricky one. Um, uh, so uh, let's go down. Um, Richard, Richard Ings. Thanks very much, Alistair. And uh, uh, Andrew, a uh, big fan of your uh, podcast. And so if there's any fire in my questions, of which I have three, it's definitely friendly fire. Uh, at the beginning, you said that uh, we don't live in a gulag, to paraphrase, uh, this is not a totalitarian society, and I'm not necessarily going to disagree with you on that, but I wonder um, what's your threshold for deciding when we might be. Uh, I often wonder whether or not uh, people who are living in, living in China, for instance, when they're using Weibo or however it's pronounced, the, the Chinese version of Twitter, whether they think they live in a 
censorious totalitarian society. And as someone who's been on uh, anti-lockdown um, protests, I certainly have uh, seen a certain amount of free speech suppression uh, going on in, in the real world. So as I say, I wonder, wonder what, what your threshold would be for, for us living in a totalitarian or, or a particularly authoritarian uh, gulag style society. Um, you said about Lionel Shriver being uh, off the mark and, uh, and uh, saying, you know, that there's you know, no point in, in being overly, uh, you know, uh, too much polarity over this. Um, but again, I wonder if, if um, you know, if, can you be in the middle on an issue like racism? Can you be in the middle on an issue like anti-Semitism? Um, you know, should we understand the people who are maybe a little bit anti-Semitic or a little bit racist? I, I sort of see your point, but I just wonder whether or not one can be too, you know, wishy-washy liberal. The last question is, uh, is, uh, is, is your argument not a bit of a straw man one? I mean, uh, you know, within my parents' uh, memory, there used to be someone who um, had to censor, uh, make sure that all plays were suitable for the theatre uh, and put a red... Um, you know, red pen for anything which had to be to be taken out. So surely since about 1970, um, we've actually been living in a sort of a free speech paradise, no? Okay, thanks, Richard. Uh, George, George Riddick. Um, so yeah, one question. Um, essentially, why, why is it that, um, I suppose there's quite a few answers to this question, but why is it that um, there does seem to be, why does one have to keep on making the, the case for freedom of speech? Like, what is it intrinsic about it that sort of, is there a, an apparent default that um, sort of creates this, this natural erosion um, away, from, away from freedom of speech? Um, yeah. Okay, thanks. Short and sharp is good. Um, Josephine, uh, do you want to come in next, please? Um, hi there. Um, again, I really like your podcast. So thank you very much for those. They've kept me company on long walks during lockdown. Um, one of the podcasts I was listening to recently was the one with Tom Holland. And he really surprised me because um, he seemed quite relaxed about um, what was going on with toppling statues. And um, he kind of had this real sense that, you know, you had the reformation and you had the destruction of um, things. And then looking back, you know, it was a moment in history um, and then something happened and people realised that life could be more interesting, more exciting. I mean, obviously, I'm paraphrasing greatly, but he made the point that, um, you know, there, there will come a time through this kind of um, removal of um, depth to things that things will become so intellectually impoverished that it will become evident that, you know, it's um, people aren't learning very much and then people will sort of switch off from the kind of university, the humanities, where this sort of thing is going on. And um, that there's kind of hope in that. Um, you talked about, you know, you need to keep pushing the idea of free speech because there's always a new generation, as Hannah Arendt says as well. Um, so there's always hope. And that the other one, that another person who I really admire is David Mamet in a theatre. And he says that um, theatre has become a bit about, um, clogged with plays about important issues, which aren't drama, but just harangue people. Um, and they're not fun to do. Um, and he said that the audience should go to their seats um, and um, the actors to go on stage as if they're on a hot date um, and not as if to give blood. Um, and again, in the theatre, well, it, could it get to the point where the audience are just so bored of these dull plays that, you know, don't uh, make us very excited, that actually there could be, you know, a turning point. 
Okay, thanks. Uh, Andrew, I'm going to take a couple more, if you don't mind, because uh, quite a lot of hands, and then I'll come back to you. So I'm going to come to Ella Whelan. So Ella. Thank, thank you, Alistair. Um, yeah, just a note to everyone, you can ask, I'm not going to ask a direct question to Andrew, you can make comments as well as asking questions and Andrew will pick up on, I'm sure Andrew will pick up on what he wants to come back on. So the point I wanted to, that I've been thinking about, I mean, you, you sort of said it in one of your comments back to Alistair, um, Andrew, but was the, the point about the, the way in which I think some of the pro free speech side have, um, have been kind of lacking, if I was to be really ungenerous, or sort of um, have room for improvement, is the question of what free speech is really about in relation to individual freedom, because um, there's this kind of, if I, can, if I can use a slightly unrelated analogy, I mean, on the, when, we, when I argue for abortion rights, and you argue for abortion on, you know, total abortion on demand, total freedom of choice, um, the suggestion among anti-abortion people is that suddenly women would go out and make the most extreme decision willy-nilly and have very late abortions and that all hell would break loose. And it's sort of a similar thing with free speech in which when you say that there should be very little or no um, or, you know, great, great kind of expanse of freedom of speech, people suddenly think that that gives, you know, get, that gives one license to <laughs> shout racist efforts from the mountaintops and, and go nuts. But actually, the, the, the thing that I've sort of been frustrated with is that the anti-free speech side have allowed, been allowed to colonise this idea that free speech is just about being allowed to say what you want, as if which is actually an incredibly narrow thing, rather than looking at the way in which free speech is about having a better collective discussion that's actually about the health of debate with a capital D, you know, more broadly, rather than your own ability to express yourself. And so just maybe what you thought about that, uh, that kind of focus on, I might even be stretched to say fetishization of individual liberty, though very important as being distanced from what it actually means. You know, what's the end point of free speech? It, it's about getting to a kind of collective position of appreciation of freedom of expression rather than just your own, your own narrow sense of, of your own freedom. Okay, Andrew, I'm going to come back to you now. Yeah, great. Um, and thanks for those questions. And I'm sorry I can't keep up with all the, the, the questions in the chat. Um, just to pick up on what Ella was, was saying there is I, I think, um, yeah, one of the things I think we, I know what you mean about the fetishization of individual liberty. I do, however, think individual liberty, like you, you know, is very, very important. But yes, there is something more, more even more important about the idea of collective, uh, the collective nature of free speech and actually how uh, the, the production of knowledge is collaborative. Our, our understanding of the world and the way the way we think is a collaborative endeavor. It, it, it isn't just about expression. Uh, it's about uh, allowing everyone to express themselves so that we can interact and reason uh, and, 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 and progress. And, and so actually, I think you're right. We need we, we shouldn't just be focusing on individual liberty, but the broader the broader question of of, of, of why free speech is important as a collective, as a society. I think that's a really important point. Um, I, I won't be, be able to get to all of these questions, will I? Um, no. But, but um, just on what Richard was saying, I've just written a couple of notes down here. So um, uh, whether we can be uh, uh, in the middle ground about arguments, you made the, the, the case that, well, should we be in the middle on racism and that kind of thing? Well, I don't think that's comparable really, it just just insofar as the, the argument about racism has been won. I mean. We, we all know that we live in a society where if you are openly racist, you, you will make yourself a pariah. It can make you unemployable. That, that's just civilized society doesn't approve of racism. We got there. Um, and so being in the middle there doesn't quite 
uh, compare um, to, to acknowledging both sides of the argument when it comes to free speech and the impact of language, because that is an unresolved issue. Uh, and I do think we need to be open to persuasion when it comes to this stuff, but we should also uh, make the case. And, and so therefore, I think, it, I think it's just a slightly different question. Um, as to a threshold for totalitarian regimes, it's a difficult one. Yeah, I think you make a very good point. How, you know, do the people in China consider themselves living under totalitarianism? How do you know when you're living under totalitarianism? The problem is, of course, we could just be living under these circumstances forevermore, and I still wouldn't be satisfied with that. It wouldn't be totalitarian by my point of view, uh, but I still think to live in a country where the police are routinely investigating people for non-crime uh, is not acceptable, and I think we, we would need to push back uh, against that. In fact, one of my fears isn't so much that we'll end up in a, a tyranny, uh, but that will just end up in a, a sort of a stasis of this kind of um, situation where we're not fully free, but we're mostly free. I mean, that's not satisfactory either. Um, I, I'd like to think, know, knowing what I know about history, I would recognise totalitarianism when I see it. Uh, and I just think strategically, uh, it's unwise to uh, amplify the rhetoric of totalitarianism at this time, because it's quite palpably not comparable uh, to, to what we saw, say, in, in, in Nazi Germany or under Idi Amin or, or any other totalitarian regime you wish to choose. Um, in terms of jo John made this point about um, you can't deal with a co coercive problem with a coercive solution. I think that's what I was trying to suggest. That's the source of my discomfort with the government intervention on, on, the, on these questions. But I also don't believe in just giving up the universities to the ideologues. I'm, I'm, I'm more uncomfortable with, with that. However, maybe it is the case. I, I, I spoke to Peter Bogosian about this recently, and he was saying that the problem is a lot of people go to university now, and because it's so ideologically driven, they leave and knowing less than when they got there, and in fact, ill-equipped to deal with uh, the reality of life. Um, because the analytical framework proffered by the, the, the social justice intersectional movement uh, is, is actually not helpful in any way. Uh, it's, it's counterproductive. It means you can't understand things. And not just that you're not equipped to deal, but you actually you actively can't understand things. So I think it, whether it's about one of the solutions might be uh, more and more independent educational institutions. So the one that I would like to mention is Ralston College in Savannah in America, uh, which was set up by Stephen Blackwood, because what he's done there is he set up a university to counter this ideology, you know, so people can learn about the humanities um, w without being force fed. Um, what to think about these things, you know, not, without being uh, having this this worldview imposed upon them. In other words, a, a classical education, which will serve you much better. I mean, I often think young people today, it might be better if they just stay at home and read a lot uh, than go to university. But so that might be one solution. Um, I mean, you, let, it may, let me let me just kind of draw you to a halt there Andrew yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and if you don't mind and we, we can come back to some of these things again again I'm sure but I'm going to I want to come out again because there's loads and loads of hands yeah, yeah, and I want absolutely. to get lots of people to speak so I'm going to duck and dive around a bit now in the list um Sadia do you want to go next please oh hi Andrew um uh your um intersectionality book um your woke book sorry by Titania I loved that I was having a really shit year last year and it really really lifted my spirit so thank you so much for that um I did want to ask uh, really really quickly how can you bring critical thinking into the main particularly at a much much younger age 
like I was kind of raised in quite a cultish environment and I didn't know how to think for myself or ask really important questions and the very first time I was involved in just like a very basic debate I burst into tears <laughs> uh, and it was really embarrassing but there's a lot of people like that and also do you not get slightly bored of just kind of talking about students and academics because I thankfully kind of straddled two worlds and most of my working class friends are very comfortable when they talk about any issue really there's never any discomfort in talking about um, anything if I'm honest so do you find it boring kind of dealing with academics and students all the time okay thank you very much uh, I'm going to come next to peers peers um, I really enjoy your work and your presentation on this and I basically agree with what you say but I suppose it's useful to put a kind of put the opposing view at its strongest. I mean, as you know, almost everybody describes themselves as pro-free speech, and almost everybody says they think there should be certain limits on free speech or what you should be allowed to say. So the question obviously is where the line should be drawn and for what reason. And you say that many people object to certain speakers because they might incite violence. And that claim is often absurd, as you say. But to put the point at its strongest, I think a lot of people who are suspicious of the free speech movement, if you can be characterized as being in that, it's, it's not so much they fear violence, they think that when powerful people or members of powerful groups say certain things that convey disrespect to certain groups of people, disrespect or lack of respect for dignity being the operative term, that harms the group which is said to be underprivileged, whether correctly or not. I mean, how in general would you respond to that objection? Because that seems to be the most powerful argument usually used by intelligent people in this debate. Okay, thanks. I'm going to come to Brendan O'Neill next. So Brendan. Andrew, your book is excellent. Really, really good. Everyone should buy it and read it. Um, but there was one point in Lionel Shriver's review that kind of spoke to me, which is not, not anything she said about the book itself, but her broader point about how the debate on freedom of speech has become a little bit tired and a little bit drab. And this is something I've been thinking about myself the way in which um, the discussion about freedom of speech, which is possibly the most exciting, thrilling, destabilizing idea mankind has ever had, how it has become a bit pedestrian. And I think one of the problems is that the freedom of speech idea has been collapsed into a kind of citizenship education view of the world. And if you look at the way in which the government and the respectable right talk about freedom of speech. They talk about it as a civilizing force. They talk about the importance of civil discourse. They talk about it almost as a pacifying force. It's a way in which young people and, and people in general um, can learn to speak in a particular way, to understand in a particular way, to understand other people. It's a bit happy clappy. It's a bit flattening. And if you look back at what's been written about freedom of speech in history, the great thing about, you know, whether it's um, Milton or George Bernard Shaw or John Stuart Mill, they all emphasize the importance of blasphemy, the importance of heresy, the importance of eccentricity, and the, the very real destabilizing conflictual impact on society that freely expressed ideas can have. And I think about Christopher Hill's book about the Civil War, uh, the, the world turned upside down, which everyone should also read. 
And he talks about the explosion of lower class heresy into public life and how that actually stirred up conflict. So isn't there an argument to be made that freedom of speech is not simply about civilizing public debate, but is also about creating conflict, creating tension or rather clarifying tensions and making it clear where they exist and what might be done about them. So um, I'm not making the case for uh, uh, incivility or uncivil discourse, but I am making the case for the revolutionary potential of freedom of speech. And I'm worried that the more freedom of speech becomes the property of the respectable right, the less we will see how radical and destabilizing and conflictual it can be in a good way. Yes. Okay. Thanks very much, uh, Brendan. So, Akil. Yeah, thank you, uh, Andrew, for tonight. And um, I've bought your book, but I haven't started it yet. Um, just very quickly, um, you mentioned, obviously, the arts and the entertainment industry and how the limits on freedom of speech have caused a lot of self-censorship there. And many would argue that, obviously, the arts uh, historically have always been a way of being subversive and exercising free expression. Do you think that the battle for free speech will be won through the arts again, or will it be a case that we um, have to fight this battle external to the arts and then the arts will follow suit? Is it going to be one of those where the arts will liberate, will have to liberate the arts or the arts will liberate us, do you think? Okay, I'm going to take two more, Andrew, because we've got lots of hands. So Andrea, uh, Andrea, sorry. Uh, well, Andrew, I haven't bought your book, not read it, but I will. Uh, but I read your article on Spiked, where you talk about Merseyside police and their board, which says um, uh, being offensive is an offence. Well, if you look carefully at that picture, you will see that uh, on the left-hand side in the background, there is the name of a store called Iceland, which was kind of revealing because uh, they were chilling the bait through that uh, board. And of course, the whole idea that uh, offence is uh, uh, to be uh, made illegal is itself offensive. Uh, that's the whole problem with this idea that uh, you have the right uh, not to be offended because uh, that right cancels and destroys itself because if you uh, have the right not to be offended and that is itself offensive then its own application uh, is nullified. Now the thing is um, another thing I uh, observed is that the freedom of speech contains within itself the right to offend. So um, you would say, for instance, uh, that um, it is an honest liberty, which only fools and tyrannies, uh, tyrants would oppose because fools and tyrants would try to uh, not be offended by things all the time. There was an interesting debate by William F. Buckley with Kissinger, where William F. Buckley asks Kissinger, uh, whether debating with communists doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't that strengthen communist ideology? And Kissinger cleverly points out that uh, that, of course, assumes that uh, not talking about communism uh, uh, weakens it. But of course, the opposite is the case. Uh, so, so far, uh, cancel culture falls into the same kind of mistake um, in that respect. Okay, thanks very much, Andrea. Mo Lovett, uh, ex, my colleague Mo Lovett. Off you go, Mo. And um, well, it was following on from Brendan's point, really, because um, I used to work in the arts and whoever said in the uh, chat, how do you find it? I find it better outside the arts, quite frankly, at the moment. Um, but I used to work with a director who used to um, get actors when they were trying to find their character to take the character as large as they could and really exaggerate the character and then bring it back down 
to what was normal. And, and to me, that was always the important thing about free speech is that you take ideas as far and as wide as you can. Uh, and, and that sort of, I think Mill talks about this as well. You kind of understand the entire context in which your ideas are being formulated. Um, but um, somebody put in the chat um, this idea that once they start calling you names, you've lost the argument. They've lost the argument. But I'm not sure that's true. And this is kind of my question to Andrew. I'm not sure that's true anymore because it seems to me when dealing with a lot of students, uh, particularly of the kind of walk variety, is that it's not um, being morally right seems to be prized over and above having your kind of intellectual horizons broadened. And to me, this kind of speaks to a sort of a nihilism or a kind of anti-humanist um, idea that Ella touched on, you know, that the idea of free speech is that people want to express bad ideas. There's a kind of suspicion that free speech can only be used in terms of bad ideas. And I wondered how much that is related to a kind of anti-humanist sentiment that um, we don't quite trust each other in the way that perhaps we have done in, in previous times. Okay, thanks, Mo. So, Andrew, I'm going to come back to you now. There's quite a lot of questions there. Um, so pick up on what you can, what you will. Uh, and then I want to come back out again for uh, a final round where we'll have to be quite quick in the questions on that round. But, Andrew. I apologise for not being able to get to everyone. There's loads there. Um, just, just on that point, Mo, about um, the, the idea that if, you, if you're throwing insults, you've lost the argument. Uh, the reason why you have is because you've basically... Um, you're not going to be in the argument anymore because if you if you it's a self-interested thing if, if you're throwing insults the other person is not going to talk to you and, and so that's that's the only reason you've, you've probably lost it at that point and you end up just talking to yourself so i think there is something uh, in it, there's something to be said uh, for arguing civilly if, if possible however and to connect this with what brendan was 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 talking about um i i i make i go to great pains in the book to defend people's right to incivility. This is this is something that I do in the book. Um, where I think the Shriver review got it wrong is the is the is that she uh, assumed that that is the only thing you should do. That the only approach to this is to be uncivil. The book I'm, I've written is is attempting to take a civil approach, but that does not imply that I don't think there's a place for the uh, more uh, waspish polemic uh, that Shriver favours. I think I I enjoy that kind of writing all the time. I just haven't written that. So assessing what I've written on, uh, on different terms doesn't make sense. It's incoherent. So that was the point I was making there, I think. And, and, I, and I do agree that when the debate becomes drab and boring, we're less likely to persuade. And, you know, I fancy that I've written a book that isn't drab or boring, and I do defend heresy and incivility and all the rest of it. But then I would, I would say that, I suppose, wouldn't I? But um, so I think, there's, I think that there's a space for all of this. If people want to be uncivil, then great. But I also think in order to win the argument, there need to be voices that do take the civil approach. Because if we don't have those voices, if, they're, if those voices are absent, if they have abandoned the field, then uh, progress won't be made on this score. So I think that, I hope that's clear. I'm sort of trying to make the, the case for everyone to speak in the way they want. Um, uh, in terms of, um, it's very interesting that you mentioned the, um, Sadia mentioned critical thinking and, how can we how can we actually bring this into education how can how can we make that case um it's hard because i used to teach a critical thinking course uh, at school and the kids saw it very much as the dos subject it wasn't considered a, like they didn't really care but the, one of the valuable aspects of it is that you could learn about how to argue and the skills of argumentation which which go back many many centuries you know that there's a, there's a reason why uh 
the, the skills of argumentation have been have been formulated in this way. And like I say, it's 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 a matter of self-interest. Um, you, you will not win the argument. You will not advance your case if you don't know how to argue. And I'm really struggling at the moment with how I engage with people who are incapable of argument. If someone comes onto my Twitter feed and just throws an insult straight away, I don't know how to talk to that person anymore. I don't know how, how whether it's even worth me attempting to, to, to talk to that person. But, but bringing it into education, I don't think actually a critical thinking class is the way to do it. I think it should be built into every level of education uh, and every, every subject uh, just as a matter of course. But I don't know. I don't know how that can be achieved. Um, Will the arts liberate us, Akil? I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I, I. I'm feeling really pessimistic at the moment about it. I. I really waver, though. Um, you know, I think Mo was talking about how she was in the theatre or, or in in the arts, and I just think it's so overwhelming and quite stifling uh, there now that it is. It's like who mentioned the mammoth quote about? I think that was Josephine talking about mammoth, saying that basically when you go to the theatre now, you're just being lectured. I think that's really off-putting when you go and see a, when you see a film and you can sense the producers there just pointing at you saying you see this is what you should think this is what you should believe and you're all morally repugnant and you need the help of Hollywood A-listers to be better people I just, I just find it really off-putting you know so I don't know if it's going to be the arts first I probably not if I'm honest but I I hate to make these predictions because I always get it wrong but um sorry I know I haven't got to everyone but um uh no, I think Sorry. That's that's fine, Andrew. Um, we can come back out again. So I've got 13 people wanting to speak. I'd really like to get everyone in. So I'm maybe going to split you into two batches. Um, so let me start with Jamie. Are you All right, ready? Andrew. Um, you set out the argument for free speech in a sensible and accessible way. So I've got the million-dollar question. How do we get out of this situation we're in with a lack of free speech? The problem I see is we've got threats coming from multiple different places. Uh, whether that be social media up here in Scotland through laws such as the Scottish Hate Crime Bill we've got on universities or through their movable books. Okay, thanks, Jamie. I know, I know you've written on the Scottish Hate Crime Bill, Andrew, so maybe that's something to come back on. Uh, Monica? Yes, um, that was the first mention of um, uh, social media. So, Andrew, I haven't read your book, and I will, and um, I agree with everything you've said so far. The only thing is you've been talking about artistic uh, freedom of speech and uh, academic freedom of speech. Um, what I'm concerned about is when idiots or despots or people who have a combination of both are allowed freedom of speech, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be, but the problem is that can foster a mob mentality. And if you go right back to Plato, that's what he was worried about. Um, and even John Stuart Mill, um, I mean, if he was, if there was a, a, a problem with hunger for the the corn farmers, you know, he wouldn't have taken the, the corn farmers to the corn dealer's house um, and then started a demonstration there uh, because he, he would have been aware what the mob can do. So all I'm saying is, what do you do with people like Trump? People who have freedom of speech, okay, he can be shut down on Twitter, but he can also get the mob going and lead them to the Capitol and then we know what happened there. So I think maybe, you know, we need to draw a line and certainly when this idea of freedom of speech came about, there was no such thing as the internet. It was really intended for newspapers and the media to be able to expound views. So we're living in a different world. 
Okay, thanks. So that's definitely something that you pick up on the book in the book, Andrew. So I'll, I'll leave you to come back on that one. I'm going to come to Koshik next. Then I'm going to come down to Matthew Can, who we tried to get earlier. Matthew, do you want to switch your camera on? Um, and then I'll come to Jan McVarish. But first of all, uh, Koshik. Um, my first name is Doug. I'm speaking to you from Michigan in the United States. A couple of weeks ago, I attended a Zoom discussion with, among others, David French and Jonathan Rausch. Uh, David French made the uh, comment that um, legally, free speech has never been stronger in the United States. Uh, certain things like this proposed Scottish uh, hate crime law just would be laughed out of the courts in the United States. So we are doing well in that respect. On the other hand, culturally, free speech has never been weaker. Um, because in effect, we do have cancel culture in many places. Jonathan Rauch um, commented how he was um, amazed these days speaking to gay groups. Uh, they are against uh, free speech. Uh, they have no understanding how early, earlier generations use free speech laws um, in the United States to help gain their rights. So I'd be interested in your comments on both of these. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, so Matthew, let's try you again this time. Okay, I've tried to unmute myself. Is this working this yeah, time? Yeah, that's it. On you go. Okay, great. I'll maybe even look at the camera. I'd like to address the flip side of what free speech is, which is also the freedom of assembly. Now, like the previous speaker, I'm also from America, so I'll address these things from somewhat of an American point of view, constitutionally, et cetera, but I am certain, my wife is English, that there are similar laws in England that uh, do the same thing. So for example, regarding big tech censorship, there is much talk about section 530, et cetera, et cetera, but there is no talk, and I'm astonished by this, this blind spot, that publicly traded companies public companies are not allowed to deny service to people for arbitrary grounds. For instance, you cannot decide to serve someone or not because of their race or their political affiliation. This is something which strikes me as a, uh, remarkably unobserved in the current situation, which big tech censorship has become so strong. Similarly, the reverse side of a person being deplatformed at a university or in any other place is not just depriving them of the right of free speech. It is depriving the people who wished to assemble to have a speaker and listen to them. All of those rights are also being deprived. And this is not currently in the public um, debate on this issue. And I think that it should be. So I think I'll leave it at okay. that. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Matthew. So Jan McFarish, and then I'm going to come to Ollie Smith after that. Hi, uh, thanks, Alistair. Um, yeah, I just wanted one of the things that keeps coming up um, when talking about free speech at the moment and reading about it is a tendency to shift towards quite a risk-averse position which ends up instrumentalizing free speech so the example of that is is this kind of argument that free speech is a, is a safety valve in a democracy which avoids bad ideas being driven underground where they don't go away they just sort of are hidden and become more dangerous 
Um, and similarly, I think the argument for free speech in a way is easier to win when it comes to campus or academic freedom um, rather than in the pub, on the football terrace or, or online, which are you know, genuinely much more free spaces and haven't got that kind of already fairly cosseted um, environment with certain rules in place as to how free, uh, how speech can be exercised. So while I don't, well, I'm not completely against um, some of the arguments for free speech as something that's a kind of necessity for a civilized society. At the same time, I think the harder point to push at the moment, in a way, is a defence of offence, um, and offence, uh, and for shifting our sensibility, which at the moment says that offence is the basis on which you make a claim for restricting other people's speech. But actually, I think there's a real thrill to offence that could be embraced and developed much more as something that is the thrill of unrestrained human interaction and the thrill of um, somebody disagreeing with you. It's not just that you can cope with somebody disagreeing with you, but actually it's a really thrilling thing <laughs> when somebody genuinely looks you in the eye and says, I don't agree with that and I, here's my argument, uh, or even just kind of takes you down in a, in a sarcastic way or whatever it is. There's something very thrilling about that kind of provocative inter interaction between people that I just wonder whether sometimes we steer too too closely to a safer version of, of, um, of speech as a kind of mediation between people. All right, thanks, uh, Jan. So, Ollie. Yo, 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 can you hear me? Yeah. Excellent. Hello, Andrew. I love all your books and stuff. Sounds Get quite on with it. Uh huh? Get on with it. Okay, yeah, sorry, yeah, snappy, yeah. I've just got a couple of sides of A4 of questions. Um, so, first of all, do you think, uh, do you think humans need religion? Because uh, often wokeism is uh, termed as like the new religion. Um, and if you don't, do you think there's anything we should believe in otherwise? And also, is Titania McGrath coming to TV? Okay, that's good. Very snappy. And uh, that's it for this round. Andrew, let me come back to you again. Thank you. Uh, I'll try and be quick. Is Titania coming to TV? Probably not. Uh, because, as I say, I think the, the uh, TV exec executives wouldn't really want someone... Uh, satirizing their own ideology uh but who knows um but do do humans need religion i think a lot of people have made this case haven't they and it's become a bit of a a cliche to describe the social justice movement as a form of religion but what i quite like about that is that it is a kind of accessible uh analogy that people immediately understand that that uh, but actually it's probably closer to a fundamentalist religion isn't it this complete intolerance of anyone who who will not go along uh, with the precepts and actually does a bit of disservice uh, to a lot of religious thinkers to make the comparison. But nevertheless, I think it's quite, uh, it, it has some utility when it comes to explain ex explaining it. Um, whether they need it, I, I, I could not, I'm not possibly qualified to to say. Um, lots of, lots of great points. Um, how do we get out of this? I just, I, I just don't know. I mean, this is, um, I think this is the, uh, this is the question of, of, this is one of the reasons I wanted to take this approach in the book is that I think if we can, uh, if we can help people to understand and, and persuade people of the, of the integral nature of, of freedom of speech, which I, think, which I think has been lost, then that will help us uh, to, to come out of this. But of course, <laughs> I can sense there's a lot of people who, who feel that taking the more uncivil offensive route is going to help us. I don't agree. I don't agree that that is the, 
the only way to do this. I mean, look, I, I've got a satirical character who many people find offensive and, and that that takes that more abrasive approach. I'm not averse to that. Uh, I know someone else was mentioning um, the idea of, isn't there something quite exhilarating about someone being in your face and, and offensive? And, and yet that's absolutely true. If you watch some of the old Christopher Hitchens debates, he wasn't being polite to the other interlocutor and, 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 and it's thrilling to watch and it's thrilling to participate in. But I think we all instinctively know the difference between that and someone who's just hurling mindless insults and is going to misrepresent what you think again and again and mischaracterize your position. And I just don't think uh, anything can be achieved by entering into a discussion with someone who is incapable of discussion. I don't think that's possible. I think it's the, it's a, it's like attempting to have a reasonable discussion with a, a child in the midst of a tantrum. It, it doesn't get us anywhere. So, you know, uh, I, I'm a big believer in both. You know, I think... Um, Let's have the, the robust barbed uh, conversations. They can be a lot of fun, um, but let's also win the argument through civil means. I think that's going to be the more powerful method ultimately. Um, I could be wrong, but that's my view on that. Um, when it comes to despots, a couple of people talk about despots and, and, and Donald Trump. And I know that connects to what Piers was saying earlier about, about powerful people who have the platforms and they can spread these. I mean, I've got a, whole, a chapter in the book about incitement and i just think it is a proposition that needs to be explored it is not a conclusion the the danger of what happened with trump is a lot of people have assumed that what happened at the capitol was a direct result of his words that's simply a proposition and one that i i don't think is feasible actually because the uh you know i mean america has a very high threshold for incitement they have a thing called the brandenburg test and there's uh, there's very few legal experts who would claim that trump's words met that standard um and um, I think it also takes away the autonomy of the people who were involved in the actual vandalism on the on the day, the, the people who actually committed the crime. And I think it is their responsibility. Um, and I don't believe that people are just these machines that act on cues from from despots. I think it's also worth reminding ourselves that the, the hate speech laws in, Weimar, in the Weimar Republic did not stop Nazi Germany from happening. The, 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 the people like Joseph Goebbels and uh, Judith Streicher and um, uh, Theodor Fritz were all prosecuted under the hate, anti, uh, anti-Semitic hate speech laws. Um, and every time, as I mentioned in the book, every time uh, this was used as a propaganda exercise and amplified their message. And I just don't, don't think it's the case that silencing, I, I just think verifiably it's not the case that silencing uh, hateful speech um, actually has the effect that you want it to have, which would, which is to eliminate its impact. Um, and often it can draw attention to it. We've all heard of the uh, the Streisand effect. Um, so I think by all means, let's have these discussions. And m- m- maybe I'm wrong about that that too. My my big concern at the moment is we're not having the d- discussions. We're just assuming uh, that if 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 all the Nazis had been silenced before World War Two, then World War Two wouldn't have happened. And the evidence sort of tells us that that's not true. So, you know, let's, we need to talk about it. Um, that's probably enough, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fine for now. Um, so I'm going to come out one final round. Um, lots of stuff that hasn't been raised yet. So feel free to, um, some of you won't have read the book, but feel free to ask Andrew uh, on anything that he's said or uh, anything that you, you those that have to read the book have, have, have seen in it. So, first of all, I'm going to come to Jan. I wonder about the relationship between the views of the artists and arts itself, 
because uh, it seems that as a society we lost the ability to separate uh, the, the value we derive from a piece of art and the uh, viewpoint of the artist. So I, I wonder at what point we should uh, we should restrain from uh, from uh, reading a book or uh, re uh, listening to a song just because we do not agree with the views someone has. And uh, I, I think that uh, the value we derive from uh, a book or a song doesn't change uh, wh whenever the artist is a saint or a sinner. So how that, so at what point should we, uh, sh should we uh, restrain from uh, certain books or songs or artists? Okay, thank you very much. I'm gonna come, is it Oli that wants to speak? Um... Hi. Um, so, Andrew, I was slightly surprised that you said you were in favour of libel laws. Um, to me, freedom of speech is a way of certainly um, bring, being civil and being honest with each other. Um, but equally, it's, it surely is about enlivening the public debate and public sphere, as well as kind of clarifying tensions and problems. Isn't a belief, belief in freedom of the press just as important as a belief in freedom of speech. Uh, I just want to pick up the point you made about um, the acquisition of knowledge being a, a collaborative endeavour, and whether you think that the, the social justice movement, the postmodern, the work, whatever you want to call them, by sealing themselves into this very strict orthodoxy where they won't tolerate um, the wrong sorts of ideas, effectively have, have laid the seeds of their own destruction in that the disciplines that, that have gone into that in that direction will effectively stagnate because without tolerating disruptive ideas then that knowledge simply won't be able to be to be formed in the future and then the quickly the bottom about had to, which was completely separate was the whole online offline thing and i know you're very much not not in favor of twitter and and the other social media companies you know regulate um, moderating because they can't do it effectively nor consistently so is the answer therefore maybe to the idea of anonymity allows people to be as blood-curdlingly horrible and vile as they like and there's no sense in which they ever become a pariah because they can just dump the account and, and set up a new account and start all over again so is is it some kind of online id or online verification where you can't have a an, an anonymous account and, and just hurl abuse all the time is that the solution rather than than moderation by the, the tech giants thanks okay thanks uh and Excellent. I'm really happy that you've been talking quite a lot tonight about schools and what impact they could have on this um, situation, because I teach law and philosophy to A-level. And I used, as well used to teach critical thinking. Um, but it again, it amazes me how few students um, actually leave school equipped to be able to demonstrate how to think properly and how to um, evaluate people's intentions um, in regard to the speech that they use and they're so keen to willfully misinterpret people um, especially I've seen so many people on Twitter um, read Andrew's comments for example and say oh, you know and really kind of not fully grasp where he's coming from at all and it makes me think that we need some sort of universal passport um, to thinking properly um, and people need to be more emboldened to say if, if someone's offended by something that they've said, like a, an academic proposition or something like that, they need to say, well, if you're offended, you're simply wrong in being offended and you ought not to be. And um, I think that needs to 
become more mainstream because people are fighting to do that at the moment. Maybe if more people read this book, it will be sorted. But um, Okay, so I'm going to come to Ed next. And then Maren, after you, if you want to turn your camera on, Maren, that'd be good. There seems to be a, a strong parallel between um, lockdown, sort of your, my safety is more important than your freedom and free speech, my safety is more important than your freedom. And also the kind of attitude of people not worrying about lockdown until it imposes on them. They also don't worry about the lack of free speech till they can't say something. Do you think there's any kind of power in, in any of that thinking in making the case for, um, for, for free speech? Okay, good, thanks. Maren. Sorry, I'd just like to ask um, um, about the opinion of um, capture, you know, ideological capture, which sort of distorts freedom of speech. I suppose I'm particularly referring to Stonewall and their programme of uh, diversity champions, which, for example, has been taken up almost universally by major police forces. And basically the, the, the sort of... Um, trans women are women view has been kind of bolted on and this is this mirrors in the way the police behave so really the, the sort of notions that perhaps aren't universal they're certainly anti-feminist and possibly anti-gay and lesbian um are now are now almost mainstream because say of what we call institutional capture okay thanks uh cassie yeah i've got two questions um, I'm basically just trying to gauge where the lines are and if there should be any lines. Like this week, Thatcher was removed from the list of um, inspirational women. And I think that's, it was, it was just a small event, so it's not that important anyway. But given the harm she did, should we be having statues of Thatcher? I'll just re-put up the one where her head got smashed off. And the other point is, how do you separate the art from the artist? Because the first one to my mind is James Brown. And when you find out what he did to Tammy Terrell when she was 16, we smashing her teeth out and beating her and attacking his wives and all of that. I don't really fancy dancing to his music. And I don't <laughs> get where the lines are when you put these celebrate people and put them on pedestals when they were vulgar, it's just like, so then what do you accept all things? I just, it's like, but then we're in a situation where I got banned from Twitter for challenging the stats around trans. So we've gone too far. And I think Andrew's right in writing this book, but then do we have any line at all? And where is it? I, I just, I'm not clear on it at the moment. Yeah, no, it's a fair question. And it's one, one of these questions that comes up all the time about where you draw the boundaries in these things. So um, I'll give you a chance to respond on that, Andrew. But before that, I'm going to bring in Claire Fox. Yeah, Andrew, I was interested um, in your, you know, you talked with despair about people who misrepresent what you think and, you know, really use that to delegitimize you. And in some ways people have responded by trying to kind of do a tit for tat cancel you know those people who are most obnoxious and vile in trying to silence you you try and silence them back any thoughts the converse of that is the people who say that misinformation about vaccines or conspiracy theories or whatever should also be policed in other words where do you think we could say well that really is too far it's a bit similar to the question before but i, I did want to just one quick thing which is 
I would say this because I'm the Academy of Ideas, but talking does make a difference because I've just done a panel dis a discussion this week with Rob Ford, who obviously thought I was going to say something that I wasn't going to say and seemed surprised when I didn't say what he thought I was going to say. Uh, so sometimes talking works. And I did a podcast with Owen Jones, of all people today, who was determined that he knew what I thought. And then the course of a conversation realised I didn't think that at all. So maybe the conversation just needs to happen. And then you realise that the caricature you've set up of someone isn't exactly what you thought it would be. And we need to listen too. That goes all sides, by the way. Yeah, good. Thank you, Claire. So, Andrew, um, it's over to you for a final round of pick, pick up on anything that you want from that uh, batch of questions Andrew but just kind of leave us something to go home with and for anybody that hasn't bought the book yet a reason to rush out and buy <laughs> more likely in this situation probably click on Amazon uh, yeah but there's absolutely loads um, uh, there I think um, okay a couple of people mentioned this idea of separating the art from the artist I think it's such a, a really fascinating question and it links to this idea of where the line is drawn I think with a lot of these questions ultimately the line is drawn where you individually decide what you can tolerate that's really what it is and I think that that's creatively as well uh, what we can't have is an arbitrary line for instance for comedians or, or filmmakers which is unacceptable I think the, the the decision has to be made by the creative and then the audience will decide whether they individually can tolerate that 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 form of expression or not and they can make their choice no one's forcing them to go to a show that they would find uh, offensive so I think I think the emphasis has to be on the individual rather than an authority figure whether that is a someone in state or someone um, in, in big tech to decide on your behalf what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Uh, I think if we were to get rid of all artists who had immoral lives, we would not have a canon of literature anymore. We would have to ditch absolutely everything. If you go to the BBC, there's that statue by Eric Gill above Broadcasting House. Well, he uh, uh, sexually molested his children and, and even his dog. The, the, you know, we, but, but the statue is a powerful work of art and I wouldn't want it, us to get rid of it as a result of that. One of my favourite novelists, Norman Douglas, wrote South Wind, which I think is one of the best novels of the 20th century. Um, but he was a pederast and a uh, claimed to have had sex with a dog and uh, raped individuals and, you know, horrible. So you can completely despise someone's conduct uh, and even disapprove of the moral message of their work and yet uh, be exhilarated by their art. And that's something which we all probably struggle with. But I think it's worth considering. Um, as to libel laws, Ollie, um, the, the point I try to make in the book is that I think... Uh, Libel laws need to be drawn very narrowly, I, I feel. I'm completely open to persuasion on either side on this. It's not something I've, I've, I've settled. Um, but, and I think, it is, I think having them is open to exploitation by powerful people who want to be silenced. And I think freedom of the press is so important. Freedom to get things wrong is actually really important. And, and the freedom to be uncivil and the freedom to be abusive. And I would be very uncomfortable with people suing people to shut them up or suing people because they've been... Uh, uh, needlessly abusive uh, because that is their right however there are scenarios if someone uh, wants to um, fabricate a story about you uh, say something about you that is factually incorrect that means that you are no longer able to be employed you are no longer able to have a livelihood and you have no uh, means to feed your family or sustain yourself then yes I think there should be recourse that financial recourse and it's the difference between uh, criminalizing speech which I don't agree with and when speech is used as a means to commit a crime, I put libel in the bracket of blackmail, perjury, espionage, 
fraud. It isn't, I don't consider it a threat to free speech to have restrictions on these things uh, because they are means by which crimes are committed, but the speech itself is not cr criminal. Does that make sense? I've sort of outlined this in the book, but I think it's something worth, uh, worth considering. Um, anonymity online. Well, I couldn't have done my satirical account online if, if you weren't allowed to be if anonymous. Um, uh, I think a lot of humor and interesting aspects of online experience is the anonymity. Uh, so I don't know if that's the solution, uh, to be honest. So I don't know about that is, is, is my answer. Um, institutional capture, Marin pointed out, is a, is a grave concern of mine. And I've mentioned it a few times in this that I think the, uh, the way in which um, very powerful people, anti-free speech activists really, have now taken control of, of higher education and, and, uh, and, and, and certain aspects of the media and, 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 and now sort of very much seeping into schools and trying to drive their ideology into children. And, and um, that's a difficult thing to fight back against because although they're a minority, they have a lot of clout. And when they've uh, attained those positions of power, how do you root them out? How do you challenge them? Uh, because they won't allow you to be heard and they won't allow you to do that. I don't, again, I'm raising the questions. I don't know what the answer is to that um but i think it's a discussion we we should have and then just to wrap up i guess um uh i i'll just pick up what claire was saying i think she's absolutely right talking makes all the difference when you actually you know nine out of ten of the people who are mischaracterizing all of you online whenever you have these people who are who are attacking you online if you met them face to face they would probably you probably get on and they would you'd probably reach an understanding and and and, and people would realize what you're actually saying i think most of the conversations, the disputes I have on social media are me correcting people about what they think I think. In other words, they're just, it's a lot of people squabbling with ghosts, scrapping with these imaginary enemies that they've concocted. And as Claire said, she can sit down with someone like Owen Jones, who obviously has a, a, a number of prejudices about what she thinks. And then, and then but once those, a discussion happens, uh, progress can be made. And, I, and that's why I think discussion is key, maybe therefore, getting off social media is key um that might be that might be the solution because it simply has has now we've now tested it haven't we and it's proven that it's not the forum for rational discussion i think it's more the forum for people to have fun and uh you know <laughs> and make up fake accounts and that kind of thing and i think uh ultimately you know i'm even tempted to get off it myself i'm a bit sick of it uh, <laughs> i think i think discussions sensible discussions and ultimately that's what i to bring it back to the book, I suppose that's why I was writing this book. I want to be able to have sensible, rational, open-minded discussions with other people who are capable of adult discussions. And I don't, I'm not interested in, in, the, in the confrontational exchange of insults. That's fine if people want to do that. And I'm all for that. It's not for me. It's not in my nature. And I also don't believe uh, that that's the route to progress. Ultimately, I think there's a space for that. But I think there also must be a space for rational, open, open conversation uh, where people are able to discourse in a, in a polite and civil way. I think that's really, really important. And it's not an either or. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Andrew. Um, it's been uh, not only pleasurable, but I think an enlightening hour and a half uh, of discussion. I mean, this, uh, just to remind you again, if you haven't gone and bought this, then you really must go out and, and, and buy it. Um, it's a, 
I thought it was a brilliant read, actually. Um, the thing I particularly liked about it, it was it was compact, and yet it seemed to have hundreds of ideas going on. I mean, there must be, what, 20, 25 chapters or something like that in, in, in the book, each tackling in an interesting and original way uh, some of the very key, most important issues of the day. So I, I think you've done a brilliant job, Andrew, uh, in, in producing something that I think is really actually going to be read very widely and really help make a difference uh, for everybody that really wants to start this uh, uh, fight back for gaining greater freedom of speech. So thanks very much for uh, coming along and, and agreeing to uh, chat to us. Um, I'm, I, I would say I'd un unmute you all, uh, but I'm scared that we crash the Zoom because <laughs> there's so many people here. So I'm not going to do that, but uh, I'm going to sort of say maybe you can clap your hands for those that are on video just uh, to show your appreciation to Andrew. And uh, I, I think the final thing is we really uh, hopefully are having Battle of Ideas Festival in this autumn and we really really want to see you there Andrew because it'd be fantastic to have you back in a kind of live discussion. Um, so just a few things to, to finish off. Um, as Claire said uh, uh, right at the start we have an initiative called Letters on Liberty uh, that Academy of Ideas are doing which Ella might be able to place a link to in the chat um, but if you haven't uh, come across this, the, the Letters on Liberty yet, then go to our website, uh, seek them out, download them, buy them, uh, and really start to engage with some important ideas about the future of freedom. Uh, Academy of Ideas, uh, if you know, six months probably till we can get Battle of Ideas back in a, a venue, but we can continue with online events. This Thursday, we have Academy of Ideas Education Forum, who are uh, hosting a discussion, is lockdown damaging children's mental health? Uh, and there'll be a link going in the chat for that if you want to find out more about that. We've also got uh, discussions from our Arts and Society Forum and our Economy Forum coming up. Uh, and just finally, the final thing I want to mention, putting on a slightly different hat, because I also work for a Battle of Ideas charity, and they are holding an event on the 10th of April, which I think is a really important event uh, that I hope as many as possible of you can come along to. Uh, it's our online version of a summer school that we run every year. This one is it's the third online event uh, that we've, we, we've, we've done for the Academy. It's called The Use and Abuse of History. Uh, and it's going to have lectures followed by discussions on the war on the past, what is fascism and all the controversies around fascism just now, uh, more controversies around cultural Marxism, and it's going to finish up with a session on the roots of America, sin or freedom, which is kind of discussion on the uh, 1776 versus 1619 issue and the foundations of America. So a really brilliant day. Um, do check that out. Uh, the link will be in the chat and I really hope that we can see you there. So thanks very much to everybody who came along. Uh, it's been a fantastic evening. Thanks to Andrew again for being such an enjoyable person to interview and a kind of enlightening person to interview as well. Um, that's it.